Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 86. One Empire, Two Empires, Three Empires. The Roman Empire has reached the year 253 and is in utter chaos. Since Alexander Severus was killed in 235, there have been 11 emperors, four in the last four years. All of them, except plague victim Hostilian, have been killed, either by Romans or in battle against the Goths. Now, Valerian has become the latest to have a go. For the next 15 years, the empire, or at least the middle part of it, will be ruled by Valerian and his son Gallienus. This sounds like a relatively stable time, but in fact, these 15 years will be the worst time for the Roman world until the Western Empire begins its fall in the mid-400s. We've already met Valerian, so now it's time to meet his son. Publius Licinius Ignatius Gallienus was born around 218, son of Valerian and Mariniana, a woman possibly of senatorial rank. He married Cornelia Salonina about ten years before his accession to the throne. She was the mother of three princes, Valerian the Younger, Saloninus and Marinianus. When Valerian became emperor in 253, he immediately asked the Senate to appoint Gallienus as joint Augustus. Gallienus was given exactly the same powers as his father. The concept of having two emperors was not new, and would in fact become increasingly common as the empire evolved out of its crisis period. In the mid-250s, the threats to the empire were so great that Valerian decided to split the rule. He travelled east to deal with the Sassanids and other eastern threats, and Gallienus went west to deal with the barbarians amassing on the banks of the river Rhine. Valerian spent a couple of years rebuilding Syria, fortifying Antioch, and generally trying to make things better for the people there. Gallienus, meanwhile, spent his time successfully repelling the invasions of the German tribes along the banks of the Rhine. There is no doubting the energy and ability of these two men. It was simply the situation into which they were pitched which caused their reigns to be so miserable. Yep, chaos reigned, and there was very little the poor emperors could do about it. They did their best to plug the gaps in the frontiers and keep the enemies out, but external enemies opened the door for internal enemies. Whenever armies were moved from one part of the border in order to attack elsewhere, the tribes along the border invaded Roman territory. If the invaders were driven back by the local commander, then the armies under that commander generally proclaimed the victor, emperor. This would force the real emperor to have to travel back to where the rebellion happened with another army, thus leaving a gap in the border defences. This led the tribes there to invade and start the whole thing off again. When Valerian marched his troops east to Syria, a particular barbarian tribe sat up and took notice. The Goths watched from the other side of the Danube while the Roman army passed by, and when it had been gone a few weeks, invaded Roman territory. They sacked various cities and ran home with Roman treasure, again. Valerian didn't have time to deal with the Goths though, the Sassanids were far more potentially dangerous. In 253, Sharpal I of the Sassanids invaded Armenia, that traditional buffer state between Rome and Persia. Valerian's legions were generally successful in driving the Sassanids back. He took the border city of Nisbis and had pretty much restored Roman control over the east by 256. Just as things were getting a bit better there, the Goths launched a major attack across the Danube and began one of those cycles we heard about a little earlier. Gallienus was forced to leave his position on the Rhine and save the Middle Empire. This left gaps in the Rhine defences, which were soon exploited by another tribe. 
Gallienus left his eldest son, sometimes called Valerian II, as an imperial figurehead on the Danube and rushed back to the Rhine. When he got there, he found the invasion was very serious, and pretty soon Valerian and Valerian II had also rushed to deal with it. This invasion marks the first proper appearance in our story of the Franks, who we introduced in the chapter about the barbarians. This confederation of German tribes demonstrated its ominous potential during the battle that followed. The emperors defeated the Franks, this time, but that just left the door open elsewhere. In the east, the Sassanid saw that Valerian had gone and began, yet again, to attack the eastern empire. Meanwhile, the Goths had discovered a new way of attacking the empire that they hadn't thought of before. Boats. They constructed a fleet of ships, sailed around the coast of the Black Sea, and plundered some Roman cities which they hadn't visited before, and were still full of treasure. The cities didn't have quite as much treasure when the Goths had gone. Yep, too many holes in the defences, too many ingenious enemies, too many rebellious commanders. Chaos and crisis simply escalated. Valerian rushed away, back to the east. Valerian II was sent back to the Danube frontier, under the protection of a general called Ingenuous, and his grandfather sped back to Syria, just about having time to order some more persecutions of the Christians. It's a bit unclear exactly how the next few things happened, but it went something like this. The Danube legions heard that Valerian was in a battle against the Sassanids. Ingenuous decided this was a good time to start a rebellion, so he had Valerian II killed and his troop proclaimed him emperor. Poor Gallienus had no time to mourn his eldest son. He charged down from the Rhine, leaving his second son, Saloninus, in the safe hands of his general Posthumus, and put down the revolt. Then he received the news that would shock the empire even more than the death of Decius at Abritus. In 259, Valerian had reached the city of Edessa in Syria with his army. The once mighty army had been struck down by the plague, but was still a force to be reckoned with. Sharpor, though, reckoned it was weak enough to even out the odds and that he was in with a chance. He knew he had a smaller army, but he calculated that his skilful generalship would overcome the numerical disadvantage and win the day. He led the Sassanid army to Edessa and challenged the Roman legions. Even though the plague had hit him badly, Valerian still had two soldiers to every one commanded by Sharpor. Despite this, the Romans were utterly routed. I mean, seriously mashed. The Roman army fell to its second crushing defeat in less than ten years and lost another emperor in the process. This time, though, the emperor didn't die in battle. No, this time it was worse. Much, much worse. Somehow, in the mad chaos of the battle, Valerian was captured by the Sassanids and brought before Sharpor. He was taken back to Tisiphon and kept there as a prisoner to show the people of Persia and Rome how low the mighty Roman Empire had fallen. Much is related by history about Valerian's capture and his time at the hands of the Persians. The Roman version, and that espoused by Edward Gibbon in his epic work, is that Valerian was captured by trickery. He was invited to peace talks and turned up in good faith, only to be treacherously tricked. This sounds a bit like the Romans covering up a disaster by pretending it wasn't fair. No, the legions would have won, they would have been fine, if these dastardly Persians hadn't played a low trick. It's far more likely that he was captured fair and square. It's just as possible that his own army mutinied after the defeat and simply handed him over. 
The Romans' ability to use collective denial to pretend that terrible events never happened was part of their psyche, and maybe one of the reasons they were so successful. The stories of Valerian's captivity are even more lurid. It is said that every day Sharpor used poor Emperor as a stool to help him mount his horse. It's far more likely, though, that he was actually treated with respect, according to Persian custom. However he was treated, though, Valerian never escaped and was never rescued. This honest, fairly capable and well-intentioned man had inherited an empire that was out of control and had fallen victim to the madness. Valerian spent the rest of his life as a captive of Sharpor, before dying in 264 in his mid-sixties. He managed to rule the empire for seven years, and then spent four years as a prisoner of the Sassanids. The stories of his treatment after his death pretty much sum up poor Valerian's lot. Apparently, when he died, his body was stuffed and kept as a trophy in Sharpor's throne room. This was truly the worst thing that could have happened to a Roman emperor. Again, this is not verifiable by reliable sources, although more unreliable ones relate that later Roman visitors to the Sassanid court were shown the corpse. All of which left the empire with a single ruler once more. For the next eight years, one man battled against impossible odds. The unfortunate Gallienus is another of my favourite Roman emperors. This cultured, committed and hard-working man played the game with the odds so heavily stacked against him he had absolutely no chance of winning. Despite this, he played it again and again and again. His imperial duty cost him his father, all of his sons and eventually his life. He subsequently received a posthumous kick in the head to add to those he repeatedly took when he was alive. Most of the sources damn Gallienus as being lazy and too fond of the high life to be any good for Rome. This is another example of Rome's ability to mislead itself in order to maintain the illusion of invincibility. The only reason things were bad was that the emperor was useless. Gallienus deserved none of it. He had to improvise to survive. He had to reform the army and the structure of the military in order to adapt to the changing times. All of this he had to do without the luxury of time to plan ahead. Far from being a useless leader, Gallienus sowed the seeds for the changes that would eventually lead to recovery. Modern historians give him a lot of the credit for laying the foundations on which later emperors built. The new sole emperor had lost his father and eldest son in quick succession. He put down the rebellion of Ingenuus relatively easily and then faced yet another invasion. A horde of Alamanni had breached the defences between the Rhine and Danube and stormed across. This time, the barbarians headed straight to Italy. Gallienus wearily marched his army towards the home province to fight yet another battle. He made for Mediolanum, now modern Milan, and met the Germanic forces. Again he was successful and recovered most of the stolen treasure. It was while he was away defeating the Alamanni, though, that his whole world fell apart. At the beginning of 260, Gallienus's empire stretched from Scotland to Africa and from the Atlantic to the Euphrates. By the end of the year, he was in control of just a small fraction of it. The year 260 has to go down as the worst year of the whole crisis of the 3rd century. Most of the problem stemmed from the fact that there were so many foreigners invading all over the empire and it was impossible for one man and one army to defend it. Whenever Gallienus ran off to fight against a foreign attack, the people left behind had to fight against the invaders by themselves, with local forces led by local commanders. It wasn't necessarily that they weren't happy with the emperor when he was around, but he couldn't be everywhere at once, 
and there was always trouble wherever he wasn't. So while Gallienus was fighting the Alamanni and saving Italy, the provinces took matters into their own hands. Revolts snowballed. Some of the accounts call the years after 260 the time of the Thirty Tyrants. While there may not have been that many men who were actually declared emperor, this simple phrase gives us a flavour of what was going on. Some of the challenges, though, were very real. In the West, Gallienus had left his second son Saloninus as imperial figurehead, protected by the military commander Marcus Postumus and his Praetorian prefect Silvanus. When Postumus successfully defeated some of the Germans while they were running away with Roman treasure, he let his soldiers keep the loot. This treasure actually belongs to other Romans and should have been given back, but Postumus knew that his soldiers needed something to cheer them up, so he refused to return it to his owners. His soldiers were of course delighted and declared him emperor, and he accepted. But there was the small matter of Saloninus, the imperial figurehead. The boy was stationed in Colonia Agrippiniensum, modern Cologne, with Silvanus. Postumus marched on the city and attempted talks with the prefect. These were evidently unsuccessful, because before long, Postumus and his troops were besieging Cologne. Saloninus was declared joint Augustus, probably in an attempt to scare the rebel troops and bring them to their senses. Were they really going to capture an emperor? Well, yes they were. The garrison in the city soon realised it had no chance of holding out against the large number of well-trained troops outside, and it surrendered. Saloninus and Silvanus were put to death, and Postumus's men proclaimed him emperor. He sent out word of what was going on, and within the next couple of years, the governors of all three Spanish provinces, all of Gaul, all of Britain, and both Germanias declared their support. A Western Senate was formed, and the western part of the empire was no longer under the control of the emperor Gallienus. In the east, the Sassanids were crashing into Syria. Gallienus had had enough to deal with in Europe and was far from the eastern border. Two men led the fight back, a general nicknamed Ballista and the local financial administrator Macrianus. They managed to keep the imperial treasury out of Sharpor's clutches to fund the fight back. In the end, though, Sharpor had sacked 36 cities in Asia Minor. Later, the two sons of Marianus would make a bid for control of the empire, but would be roundly defeated by Gallienus. As he was retreating with buckets of treasure, Sharpor met a force he hadn't expected to see. The desert city of Palmyra was independent of Rome and Sassanid Persia, and had its own army, led by the Palmyran prince Lucius Septimius Odenathus. Odenathus was from an important Palmyran family, who had received Roman citizenship under Septimius Severus. Odenathus was keen to be closer to Rome than to Persia. By the 250s, he was the leading man in Palmyra. Sharpor was not ready for the attack, and the Palmyran army completely crushed the retreating Sassanids. Odenathus was a hero. This was some revenge for the capture of Valerian, who, we must remember, was still alive at this time. Much is made of the rise of Palmyra, and it has been presented as a threat to the authority of the Roman Emperor. It seems clear, though, that Gallienus welcomed and may even have asked for the help of Odenathus, and there's nothing to suggest he was intentionally disloyal to the Emperor. Gallienus conferred the title Imperator, which we must remember didn't mean Emperor, on Odenathus. It wasn't until Odenathus died that the eastern part of the Empire declared itself to be separate. After the defeat of the Sassanids, 
Odenathus brought most of the Eastern Empire under his control. He had executed the son of Marianus for rebelling, and he was at least indicating that Gallienus was still in charge. Probably reluctantly, Gallienus accepted the situation in the Empire was so desperate there was no point in trying to do anything about the new leader in the East, and so he agreed to let Odenathus be in charge of Syria, Palestine, Arabia and most of Asia Minor. But now in reality, the eastern part of the empire was no longer under the control of the Emperor Gallienus. On the Danube, the legions were feeling a bit miffed that Gallienus had deserted them to defend Italy. Not that poor old Gallienus had much choice. They declared their general, Regalianus, emperor. He then led the defence against the local German forces. So now most of the middle of the empire was also no longer under the control of the Emperor Gallienus. What these three new local leaders didn't do was try and challenge the emperor for the whole empire. If they had, they would probably have been defeated, but they didn't. Each of them took control of their smaller parts of the empire and led very good defences against invaders. There were no local revolutions, because everyone just wanted to be safe from invasion, sackings, pillaging, looting, torture, destruction and death. This really was the most chaotic year of the 50 years of chaos. Poor Gallienus put his head in his hands and shouted, Ah! Then he got on with defending the little bit of the empire he had left. In both the east and the west, Roman leaders and governors were left in place. Both Odenathus and Posthumus saw themselves as Roman emperors, leading Roman provinces in a Roman way. Neither tried to take control of the whole empire, and both were very successful in defending the borders against the enemies of Rome. Both were also popular, as they brought some peace to their territories. In the centre, Regalianus was soon killed in a battle with the Goths, and Gallienus took his chance to snatch that part of his empire back. He marched up to the Danube and brought the Danube legions back under his command. For the first time, the tide turned just a little. It would, though, take another 14 years for the Emperor of Rome to reclaim the rest of the empire, and that emperor would not be Gallienus. No, Gallienus would be long dead by then. Next time, we shall find out just how that death occurred. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please visit www.mythandhistory.podbean.com where you'll find a donation button. All donations are, of course, extremely welcome. So, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.